When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I like the chance to sort of see maybe the story that the writer knows that they're writing. And then also I always feel like there's this story underneath that maybe they're sort of aware of, but hasn't quite found its way up into the piece. And so part of what I enjoy as an editor is sort of finding how to bring that that second story out. Welcome back to Working. I'm your host, June Thomas. And I'm your other host, Ramon Alam. Ramon, the voice we heard at the top of the show belongs to Bridget Hughes, who is a storied editor of literary magazines, and we'll hear a lot more from her in this episode. But before we journey to that world, I want to know how you are. I'm especially curious because I believe you were out of town reporting a story this week. Was that your first time doing that since COVID? And was it like getting back on a bike? I think maybe the better metaphor is assuming that you know how to ride a bike. It's like getting back onto a unicycle, <laughs> right? Everything is safer. People are More people are vaccinated. so And vaccines are very effective. And so you feel kind of safer being out and about. But of course, there are all these cautionary protocols still in place in hotels and trains and restaurants and you know, obviously it was lovely to be out of town. I was in Washington, D.C. I was visiting um, someone who I'm writing a profile of. But even though I traveled through space, I didn't travel in time. Like, I went to a different place, but it's still the contemporary reality in that place. And that's just what it's like, you know. What about you, June? Have you gone anywhere besides home sweet home? I have, and I actually did feel a little bit like I was time traveling. So I went to the beach last weekend I, you know, ate indoors, didn't wear a mask when I was with people I knew were fully vaccinated. And that was strange, but, you know, it was a vacation. It's never quite normal, right? But earlier this week, I went to what Project Runway always used to call an industry event, you know, movie <laughs> screening in a rooftop bar in Manhattan. And, like, that felt familiar. That It was fun. Yeah. Didn't feel all that strange. But walking back to the subway along the river, chatting with a friend, that did feel odd. You know, it'd been a long time since I'd done something like that. And it kind of helped me understand what movie flashbacks actually feel like. (laughs) That sounds really nice and cinematic, walking along the river on your way home from a party with a friend. That sounds so nice. It was. Watching all the rats at play, it was great. (laughs) So, Ramon, who is Bridget Hughes? Bridget is the founding editor of a magazine called A Public Space, which is, you know, it's a great little literary magazine, and it also is a book imprint now. A Public Space is based here in New York, and I have known the magazine from the very beginning. Um, In fact, I'm I'm pretty sure this is true. I was one of the inaugural donors to the magazine um, from its very first issue. And so Bridget and I have... um, She's someone who I've seen a lot at parties over the years, and it is a magazine that I have followed since its inception. Very cool. So what should listeners who have never seen a copy of a public space know about it? Like, how big is it? What kind of work does a typical issue contain? So a public space, like most of the little literary magazines that we mention in the conversation in this episode is one of those periodicals that looks like books. You know, it's like 200 or so pages, perfectly bound. There's a mix of short stories, poems, visual art. Sometimes there are these sort of hard-to-classify experiments that sit between genre, um, but they use the page Mm -hmm. as an essential component of that experiment. You can probably find the current issue, a public space number 29, at your local library. You can probably find it at an independent bookstore in your neighborhood. You can visit their website, apublicspace.org, and order a copy for yourself. So it sounds like you are a regular reader and patron, maybe, is the language of literary magazines. (laughs) 
I don't know about patron. I think I gave them $20, but I am a subscriber to a public space. I subscribe to the Paris Review, the Los Angeles Review of Books, which has a print journal, Noon, which is a magazine that comes up in my conversation with Bridget, N Plus One, which is a sort of political and cultural journal of the same model that we're describing here. And I do regularly go to community bookstore in Park Slope and buy like a stack of others. Mm. I do this because I'm a reader, you know, I think that's been well established on this <laughs> podcast, Yes, you know, and when I was a younger writer, it was my dream to be published in these kinds of magazines. You know, it was my dream. I don't write as much short fiction these days, so I don't really submit work to these kinds of magazines a ton any longer. Um, Although I do have a short story being published in the next issue of Plowshares, which is a literary magazine published at Emerson College in Boston. And there is something very special about getting that like perfectly bound thing in the mail and it's cellophane wrapper and you open it up and you see all these names of writers you know and admire and writers you have yet to have met. And um, it's all sort of jumbled together in there. It's kind of a great thing. Yeah, it kind of puts you in community with those other writers that absolutely, you're Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, that's lovely. So I cannot wait to learn more, but before we get to the interview, I also want to mention that Slate Placistas will hear a little something extra from your conversation with Bridget Hughes. What will they, the Placistas and only the Placistas, hear? So a magazine like A Public Space is a not-for-profit concern. So I wanted to hear from Bridget how the magazine weathered the challenges of the economy the past year. You know, it's it's never an easy thing to be in the business of publishing poetry, but, like, you know, the past year has been sort of a climactic event, you know. Um, I also asked Bridget to tell the amazing story of the writer Betty Howland, which I, I don't even want to spoil it. I want to <laughs> let her tell that story. So you have to subscribe so you can hear that. Exactly. You have to subscribe. You absolutely do not want to miss that. And why would you when it's so easy to subscribe to Slate Plus? You'll get exclusive members-only content, zero ads on any Slate podcast, bonus episodes of shows like Slow Burn and Danny Lavery's new podcast, Big Mood, Little Mood. And you'll be supporting the work we do here on Working. It's only a dollar for the first month. To sign up, go to slate.com slash working plus. All right, let's hear Roman's conversation with Bridget Hughes. This episode of Working is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love listening to in-depth interviews and discussions of craft and the creative process or whatever the heck it is all the other podcasts you listen to do, you call the shots with what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. My first question is like kind of an obvious one, but what what does a public space mean? Tell me about the magazine's name. I think a public space, or I hope a public space, means a certain openness to surprise and to a multiplicity of, of voices and the way that those different voices overlap and intersect and um, resonate with each other. And in each issue of the magazine, I guess we we sort of try to do that in a different way. So, Bridget, you began your career in publishing as an intern at the Paris Review, which remains probably one of this country's most eminent small literary magazines. That magazine was founded in 1953, when that founding editor, George Plimpton, died in 2003. You succeeded him for a couple of years. You left that title in 2005, 
and you started a public space only one year later in 2006. Did you know right away that that was your goal, that you were going from one small literary magazine to one of your own? Or did you ever consider, like, maybe I should just get a job as an editor at Random House, or maybe I should, you know, go work at the New Yorker Field Books for a couple of years? Like, how did you know that, like, you were a true believer in this cause of the small literary magazine? Well, I think when I started at a public space, it was a sort of a curiosity about what it meant to be an editor. And I had I had some familiarity with literary magazines. I'd gone to school at Northwestern in Chicago, which at the time had a fabulous magazine called Triquarterly. And the library at the university had a wonderful collection of magazines. So I was always drawn to literary magazines. Um, when I first arrived at Paris Review, I thought that I might eventually go to medical school. Um, and every year I thought, well, not this year. I think I'll stay one more year at Paris Review. And it was just a sort of a, a I think to some sense, just a stroke of luck to, to, to sort of arrive at, at what was the perfect place for me. And when it came to that transition moment of leaving the Paris Review, um, I felt so deeply connected to what, what a literary magazine could do. Um, and to the freedom that, that a space like that allowed. Um, well, what were you studying when you were an undergraduate, whiling your hours away in the library? As many editors, I was an English major um, and had studied. They had a wonderful undergraduate creative writing program and that I had applied to um, and studied poetry for a year. And that, um, that sort of led to the editing so you were writing poetry as an undergraduate, but you work now as an editor. What's the sort of relationship between those two things? I mean, what's the tension there? Do you have to understand how writers work in order to be a good editor? And how was it you decided, like, oh, in fact, writing verse is not for me, but creating, helping people create is for me? Well, I think, you know, you can't go to school to become an editor. There's no degree. I think when I was in college, I knew I was interested in books. I knew I was interested in literature. And so to me, that meant that meant reading. And then that meant, you know, possibly writing. But what I remember from the workshops was just this curiosity about how my colleagues sitting around the table, how a poem or a story got made. And I think that was always more exciting and, and compelling for me than than my own work. You know, I think there are a number of, of editors who, who sort of travel a similar path. And I just liked, I liked the chance to sort of, um, I guess, both eavesdrop on how a piece is made and also as an editor, I think, to see maybe the story that the, that the writer knows that they're writing. And then also I always feel like there's this story underneath that maybe they're sort of aware of, but hasn't quite found its way up into the piece. And so part of what I enjoy as an editor is sort of finding how to bring that, that second story out. So would you say that your practice as an editor was honed in those undergraduate workshop experiences, or was this something you came to understand about yourself when you were working at the Paris Review? And what was working at the Paris Review your first job? That was your first job? It was my first job, yeah. That was your first job. That's mm -hmm. incredible. So was yeah. this something that you sort of, that you came to understand about yourself as you were doing it? Or do you think that it predated that tenure of the Paris Review? No, I didn't understand. I mean, I don't think I knew what being an editor meant until I was at the Paris Review. You know, I remember this was sort of back in the day when editing was still done, um, you know, on, on the printed page. And one of the early parts of my job was to see how how those pieces were put together. And Paris Review, of course, famously has the Writers at Work interview series. And that was probably the most formative experience for me in terms of understanding what, what an editor could do. There would be these uh, several conversations. We would have transcriptions, and you would sort of have these pages of hunt pages and hunt pages, and you would sort of cut out different sections and piece them together. The term that was used um, at the magazine was you'd have a snake, kind of a snake of a manuscript. Um, a literal, so like a physical yeah. manifestation, all of these yeah. manuscripts chopped up. Yeah. It's so interesting because, yes, you think about a conversation that happens in the pages of the Paris Review with a writer of, like, real stature, you know, Laurie Moore, Louise Erdrich, you know, so our mm -hmm. great living writers. 
and what you see represented on the page rep- could be like 15% of a really long conversation between that writer and the staffer or the freelancer from the magazine or that unfolded over the course of like several visits. And yet that becomes the thing. And that's so, I guess that's what you're saying is like, that is where the hand of the editor lies. The, you, the editor has created that artifact. Yeah, the editor, the editor with the author and, yeah. and with the interviewer. It was, you know, very much that conversation and that back and forth. And yeah. there would be moments when the interviewer would have really captured something. They would have, they would have asked a question or put the, the author at ease in a way that they would have said something that they might have been reluctant to share knowingly. And you could see in, a, in an editorial conversation sometimes the, the author trying to edit that out but too and late. You say, no, yeah. the sort of, yeah. that's the moment. That's, you know, that's this wonderful moment where we really get a sense of who, who the author is. And um, so I think just that, that back and forth between all of the people was, was a huge lesson for me in editing. So in 2005, you had left your first job. Um, how long had you been at the Paris Review at that point? I'd been there a while. I, it had been not quite a decade. Um, And the magazine had been planning for its 50th anniversary. Got it. Then you suddenly found yourself away from the place you had begun your career and with the resolve or the inspiration to create a magazine of your own. How does one, like, what are the first steps in, you know, a magazine is expensive. Like, what were the first steps that you took to conjure a new, a whole new publication. It was a time sort of in publishing in general where, you know, if you remember, a lot of the commercial magazines were shuttering their fiction departments. There was this conversation, it felt to me, that was going on about the value and necessity of fiction. Um, And so it, I think in part it felt to me like a moment to start a magazine that might challenge that and be a way to explore explore some of the questions that came out of that debate. Um, It was also a moment when there were a number of writers I had worked with at Paris Review who were just starting out in their careers and starting a new magazine was a way to continue that conversation with them. And there were some, you know, some people who were interested in in small magazines and interested in, in helping in terms of funding to make a new magazine possible. So really what it took was, was at, the, at the very beginning was just announcing that we were going to do this. Um, you know, that was it. Like, you throw your hat over the fence and then you have to go, you have to go get it. I mean, it's very gutsy even now to think about like, you know, you were still a pretty young editor and, you know, I think maybe the Atlantic Monthly had announced that it was going to cease publishing fiction around that period. If, mm-hmm. Is that right? Like, I, they, they've since waffled on that, and I actually don't know where they are right now, whether they're publishing fiction or not. But I think they are, and they've published. They have published some great stories in the last year. So they are. So yeah. they're back. They've decided mm-hmm. that it matters again. But there was a period of time where, like, you know, for a long time, it was like the New Yorker. Uh, you know, Harper's, you know, the, you know, and all these magazines that no longer exist, like the Saturday Evening Post or something where, where, you know, great American short fiction continued to be published. And, but even now thinking about like the temerity of you being in your mid thirties, early thirties, really, and saying mm-hmm. like, oh, you know what, if the, if something like The Atlantic is no longer publishing fiction, or if Playboy is no longer publishing cutting edge fiction, maybe I should be the one to do that. You know, I think there have been a few moments when if I had stopped to to think about about it, I would have been like, does this make sense? Hmm, this is possible. I don't know. But but I guess for me the lucky thing was that I didn't stop and, and have that conversation with myself. Um, it just felt like something that there was a moment to do it. Um, I was I was curious about what kind of magazine we could make. And didn't really think beyond that, just thought, you know, what would happen if we tried to do this? Well, and here we are 15 years later. Yes, right. So, <laughs> so it's, it's worked out okay. Was your initial plan, did you have an initial plan that accounted for, like, a lifespan that we we're going to publish 
annually or biannually or quarterly and this is what we're going to do and this is what we're going to pay our contributors and this is what's going to happen on the website or were you just sort of feeling your way forward at each step very much just feeling our way forward at each step um i do have somewhere in the archive sort of an early scrap of paper with a you know a budget and and some plans and um they couldn't have been more wrong. <laughs> um, no, so it was very much sort of um, figuring our way out as we went along. And we had, you know, a, a really good group of contributing editors who joined on early on, um, a board who was engaged, and we all sort of figured it out together um, and pieced it together as we went. You publish quarterly now, is that right? Tri-quarterly. Tri-quarterly. Yeah. Tri-quarterly. So I'm so curious to understand, like, the business of producing three issues a year, how much of that goes into the reading of submissions or the creation of a theme for an issue or the commissioning of artwork or talking to poets about what they have going on, and how much of it is spent doing fundraising or thinking about the position of the magazine or, you know, attending events or being out in the, the other public space, which is sort of book fairs and lectures and all of that stuff. Like, wh- how is your time apportioned? All these years later, I still feel like I'm supposed to be editing all the time and reading submissions all the time. And that's what this role, that's what I thought the role was, I think, at the very beginning. And I've never, you know, you never quite manage for that to be how a day goes or a week goes. So on a good day, you know, it's maybe sort of the early morning is for the editing and the reading and the rest of the day is for the phone calls and the the plans and the working with the staff and the the details like that. I mean, I'm sure it's the same for you. I, I think that there's maybe like an enduring fantasy about creative work that it is this immersion and the pure labor of wrestling with the words and whether you're the editor or the writer, but that the reality is slightly more complicated, right? Like sometimes you have to take your computer to the genius bar. Sometimes you have to like chase down the check that someone owes you. Sometimes you have to like have a drink with your agent. Sometimes you have to do these other parts of the business, but they're all interconnected. Yeah. And they, and they, I think that they nourish each other. If you only, if you only read, you only wrote you only edited each day, every day. Um, I think I think your talents would dissipate in some in some way. Uh, so, a public space, as you mentioned, it seems like the founding of the magazine had something specific to do with fiction. You know, the magazine does publish poetry, it does publish nonfiction, it does publish, you know, works of art, and sort of these pieces that almost feel unclassifiable um, that are the kind of thing that I think the small literary magazine has always been adept at publishing, the work that just doesn't belong in other publications. But do you have like a personal feeling about fiction's primacy in the pages or in fact in the culture? No, and I think one of the exciting things that's happened in the years that we've done a public space is that those rigid divisions between genres have have blurred, and I think some of the most exciting work has been where those divisions are are blurred. So I don't I don't think of it as a fiction magazine. I think of it as a um, I think of it as a collection of these disparate voices who are each finding their own form. And sometimes it, it takes a form that's identifiably a poem and sometimes identifiably, you know, a short story. But, but a lot of times it's something, something sort of somewhere in the middle. You mentioned triquarterly and the discovery of that in your student days is kind of a eureka moment for you as a reader. Is triquarterly no longer being published? It is still published. It's now an online publication. It's online. Yeah, it's online. And I think... A handful of those, I think Story Quarterly is online now only. I mean, you know, but what is, what is that form? What is the small literary magazine? And like, how would you situate its significance? I mean, has it ever really been significant or has it always been kind of a niche concern? Well, I don't think a niche concern makes it a, not a significant concern. I think the, the, the fact that it is niche is what gives its value and, and, 
you know, a number of books that are and authors who are have made a significant impact on our literary culture. I think you can often trace them back to a literary magazine and that many of them are still um, closely connected with literary magazines as a place to you know, experiment with a new idea or take some sort of risk that you couldn't take in, in a more mainstream publication. And I think they're hugely valuable as those kinds of spaces. I guess I think of literary magazines um, or the ones that are most exciting to me where you know, there's an editor who has a very specific vision. And so you sort of feel that if you're picking up the, the magazine that you're having a conversation with that, with that editor in some sense. Um, whether it's a magazine like you know, Noon, which Diane Williams edits, or um, a magazine Volt that a poet named Gillian Connolly edits. You know, I think there are all of these. I, so, so for me, I think that that's how I think of a literary magazine. And when I think of a public space alongside other literary magazines, um, it's sort of all of these different editorial visions sort of sharing a space. I'm curious to hear from you the ways in which your task as an editor, not the fundraiser, not the person who's signing all the grant applications, but really when you're talking about the text, the ways in which that's creative. And, you know, we often don't know the names of the people who are editing our famous writers. I think for me, editing is a creative endeavor, just in in, in the way that you're paying attention and in the way that... that um, you're sort of trying to you're trying to understand what the author's vision is, what they're aiming for, and you're 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 trying to do it um, in a way that's pointing out something to them that maybe they haven't noticed in their work. And that's for me, that strikes me as a creative endeavor and 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 an exciting and a fulfilling one. Do you think it requires a kind of not necessarily self-effacement but you know when a writer collects an award it's the writer who's collecting the award even if it's for work that is understood that the you know the editor could have been hugely influential in shaping that work is that just part of the bargain is that just what it is but it's it's the author's vision i mean yes there there would not be a book there would not be a you know a sentence without you know um your role is is to elevate and and encourage that. I mean, I think the self-effacement comes in in that it is the it is the I mean this is to say it the obvious, but it's the author's work and it's not you aren't trying to make it into the story you would have written if you were the yeah. writer. You're trying to make yeah. it into the story that that's the ideal or you know the 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 truest version of what of what the author is trying to write. And if you forget that, if you start to think about it as the story, the version you would write, you know, I think then, then, um, then things get a little problematic. We'll be back with more of Roman's conversation with Bridget Hughes. With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption in logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com insights. One of the things we'd love to do with this show is help solve your creative problems, whether it's a question about getting down to work or what you can do to connect with an editor who gets you anything at all. Send them to us at working at slate.com or give us a ring at 304-933-WORK. And if you're enjoying this episode, don't forget to subscribe to Working wherever you get your podcasts. Now let's return to Roman's conversation with Bridget Hughes. I wonder if the editing of each individual issue of a public space is a kind of self-contained endeavor that like 
the goal for each individual issue is about a kind of balance for the whole and that you then move on to the next issue or is it always like an immersion in a particular piece and it's sort of irrespective of which issue it's being put into? It's both, I would say. Um, I think there's always a piece when you're putting an issue together that feels like the center of the issue and then you sort of build build around that. And, you know, I think sometimes you'll hear about how a short story writer thinks about putting the, the stories together in a collection. And I think for editors of a, of a magazine, of a literary magazine, they'll often talk about the thought that they give to how the pieces fit together and the way that you sequence them. Um, and I'm not sure that that it's anything that readers ever notice or often notice, um, but I think it helps us to sort of um, just to highlight what, what we're thinking about in the issue, and it's kind of a way of focusing our attention. It's not uncommon for, and I'm looking at my shelves now to see if I have a great example, it's not uncommon um, that the work that the general public may know as a book began its life in the pages of a small magazine. Are you conscious of a responsibility as the editor of a small magazine to be kind of the the midwife for this work that could then ultimately become really significant in the culture that like if a, you may publish a story that's a debut story by a writer who then goes on to publish a collection of those short stories two years from now and becomes like really well known in a way that they simply can't be when their publication track record is a bunch of small magazines. Well, we have a fellowship program for writers that is less about um, shepherding them through, you know, into a career and more about trying to be a place to support writers who are working a little bit apart from from the mainstream or for what for kind of what the current marketplace would be open to um, and to try to make an ongoing commitment to those writers and their work I think we try to focus on supporting the writer and on supporting what their vision is for their own work and helping that work find its readers there are a couple of examples from the magazine's history that that I still think you know a lot about. Um, one is we published Jesmyn Ward's debut story, a phenomenal story called Cattle Hall. And I think that was in around 2007. And she's talked in interviews sort of about the struggle she had at the start of her career to, for her, her work to find an audience. You know, and of course, that's hard to imagine now because she's had such a huge impact on on our on our literary culture. That's quite a that's quite a legacy on your part. That's quite a legacy on the magazine's part. I mean, Jasmine Ward is probably one of our most significant writers working today, and it's not. And again, I'm not talking about money necessarily, but impact or you know significance, cultural significance. I don't think you could. I can't think of a writer of her generation who's comparable in some ways. That must feel great. That must feel very satisfying. I mean, it's satisfying that, that it's a beautiful story and that we got to, you know, that we got to publish a work that, that felt meaningful and, and valuable. Um, and it would, it would be as valuable as, you know, still as if, if she hadn't gone on to win two National Book Awards. Um, but it's interesting to me to just remember what, what that career path was for her. You know, and then there are writers who, of course, who publish the first story, and then that sort of immediately launches them into their, their professional life, and, and that's wonderful to see, too. I mean, as, like, I had an undergraduate experience not unlike yours, right? Like, even actually in high school, I worked at a bookstore in suburban Washington, D.C., that had, you know, as most bookstores did back then, like, a pretty robust periodical section, and we had the literary magazines, no one ever bought them. So I would always take them or they were like meant to be returned and we would strip them and I would take them home and read, you know, American Scholar or the Antioch Review or, I mean, I can't even remember some of the names of them, but, um, and I certainly read work by incredibly well-known people, but I also certainly read work by, you know, just working writers who maybe never published a book or published one book that I was unaware of and, you know, and I can still remember some of that work. And that's sort of the joy of discovery that is 
not always possible when your only access to what's happening in art is what is being published commercially. There's some, there's less, I want to say less pressure in a way as a reader when you're reading through a literary magazine. There's, there's something just a little bit more relaxed about it. All of the writers are taking a risk and it, you know, they're doing something fun and you, know, you can have fun leafing through it and finding a voice that, that excites you and you know, another piece that makes no sense to you or confuses you or confounds you. And like, that's, all, that's all sort of wonderful and there's no pressure that it has to be, it has to be more than that. But you're committed to the model of producing three times a year this beautiful couple hundred pages bound in a beautiful jacket like that is what a public space is fundamentally is that right yes that is fundamentally what a public space is yes um i like that contained experience i like saying in this period of time we created this object um and we want to we want to put this object into your hands um to me that's a very different reading experience than than if we became an online publication. Um, and for me, the, the, the print, the, the object is important. It's an important part of our work. Do you find that young readers are willing to go there with you? Do you find that there's still, like, is there still that same nerdy 22-year-old that you yes. were and that I was? Yes. They're still out there. I, I absolutely <laughs> believe that there is. <laughs> Maybe even nerdier, yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, and with new ideas and like huge yeah. imagination. Um, one of the uh, programs that a public space has been part of, the Whiting Foundation, which is known for the awards that they give out to writers, started a, a prize a few years ago for literary magazines. Um, and a public space received a, a prize for it in the inaugural year. But one of the things that they do is that they bring together the editors of the, of the various prize-winning magazines every year. Um, and some, you know, so there are some young editors who are just, who've just, you know, created these, these magazines and, and print magazines. Um, and the way that they're thinking about what a literary magazine can be and can do um, makes me think that, yes, absolutely, um, they're as excited about literary magazines as we are. I wonder where in the life cycle of the next issue you are and whether you feel like the work that you're going to be publishing that readers are going to read in the next issue, which will come out at the end of this year, I presume. July. Um, Mm -hmm. Oh, July. So you have an an issue coming in the summer. Like, how tight is the relationship between what you see in the pages of the magazine and what you see in the world around you? Are you seeing art reflect the cultural moment that we're just emerging from? I mean, inevitably, it's reflecting the moment we're just emerging from, but I think not in the ways that we... I don't think we're quite aware of the ways it is reflecting this moment. I think it'll take us a couple of years to look back at the pieces that we are publishing now and say, oh, that's what we were thinking about. That's sort of how how this experience shaped us. Um, I mean, are you asking in part, like, are we getting a lot of stories, submissions about the pandemic and about what what the events of this past year have felt like for us? And the answer is yes, but those are probably not as interesting as the other types of pieces that we're getting, that we're getting in, that writers probably think don't have anything to do with this current moment. But I think in some unknown, but hugely important way are, are capturing this experience for us. I mean, that makes sense to me because you're not in the business of making individual books, right? So that like a novelist may be determining whether or not her realist romance novel set in 2020 should have protagonists wearing masks. But what you're seeing, the poetry or the stories that are being produced by people who are actually living through that, whether or not they're writing about someone wearing a mask the work is going to contain that on some level. That yeah, feeling. I think so. I think so. Um, but I don't think it comes from the work when, when the writer thinks they're writing about this moment, <laughs> you know? Um, yes. Yeah. I think it's this too, goes back too close to, your, to it. Yeah, this goes back to your practice as an editor, your, your sort of like yeah. analytical practice almost. almost it's almost like a, 
when you described that at the beginning, your approach to helping a writer understand something that she may not even understand yet about her own project. Or, I mean, I think, you know. I think does understand, but hasn't quite, hasn't, it, it, somehow it's, it's sort of in their blind spot. Yeah. How do you feel it's, it's influenced your, the fiction that you're writing this year? I, th- I mean, I think it's, as you say, it's an unknowable, I mean, yeah. it's going to be there, you know, Trump is going to be there, the pandemic is going to be there, just as Brexit was going to be there for writers in the UK, right? Like, it's all going to be there. And Ali Smith is writing about Brexit specifically or explicitly. That's the project. But Ali Smith's contemporaries are also writing about it in some other way that may be less clear. And it's the kind of thing that's only clear when you look at it in the review mirror, I think. Yes. You know? Yeah. Just as we think about 9-11, like, I think there's no... I'm not sure that there's a single great work that is explicitly about 9-11, but I think there's a huge, vast body of work that is grappling with the after effects of 9-11. Yes, yeah. Bridget Hughes, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much, Ramon. It was a treat, a pleasure. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month, So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad. To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. Ramon, I have to say that felt like the perfect match of interviewer and interviewee. Like you clearly have a great love for the specific kind of work that appears in the small magazines. And it really feels like a gift that there are devoted editors very self-consciously saying this work may not be commercial. And in a strict capitalist marketplace, it probably wouldn't get published or it definitely wouldn't get published. But we believe it's important and it'll be meaningful to readers and that those readers deserve support. What a wonderful vocation. What a thing to put into the world. I couldn't agree more. I think it's hugely important work. You know, the market can't be the only metric by which we measure artistic excellence. And, you know, there's no way for a reader to purchase one poem or one story. And so the idea that a poet or a story writer would have to build up a huge body of work in order to enter the market is sort of flawed also. Many of the writers who we now consider canonical were really successful, like Truman Capote or James Baldwin showing up on TV shows. But, you know, many of them worked in comparative obscurity. And a writer or any kind of artist, for that matter, may not reach the peak of their powers until late in their life, after like decades of publishing poems in small magazines. You know, these magazines are a part of the culture and we are richer for it. I really appreciated your questions about how Bridget learned to edit. Like, as she said, people don't or even can't go to school to edit, to learn how to edit. And I would add my opinion that although you can learn something by editing your own work, most people learn how to edit well by themselves being edited by great editors. I have learned a huge amount from some of the style editors at Slate and elsewhere, you know, people like Jack Schaefer, who was my first real editor, and Josh Levine, who always makes my work at least five times better. And I don't have a lot in common with those guys demographically, but there's a kind of a mind meld quality. They got what I was trying to say and they helped me say it better. Do you agree that editing is something that you learn about intuitively by working with simpatico editors that help you do it better? 
I wish that it were possible for there to be formal instruction, but I'm not sure that there is. There's also not an apprenticeship model because what you're talking about is almost like you happen to meet someone who's a good editor. You have the experience of being edited by them and you learn something from that. You know, I think the ability to edit in the end must be sort of a proclivity, like having perfect pitch, you know, (laughs) some people just know how to take another person's words and make them sharper or press them into more useful service of what that writer wants to say. And I'm really lucky, you know, like you, I've worked with some truly wonderful editors who have sort of raised the bar and helped me understand what I can expect of an editor. Megan Lynch, who's the publisher at Flatiron Books, was the editor on my first books. She's an absolute genius. Helen Atzma and Sarah Birmingham, who took over my third book from Megan, are both so different in their approach from one another and from their predecessor, but they I learned so much from that experience of working mm. with them. And, you know, again, it's like, I can't go to school to learn this. Yeah. So I learn it by sort of absorbing it from the people who are working with me. So I was also struck by Bridges' stories about starting out when editing still happened exclusively on paper. You know, the snake that she talked about, that's a fabulous image. Do you think that the format affects the process? Do you think and do you think you get edited differently when you're working on paper, digitally, in an audio setting? I mean, Cameron, our producer, he's definitely committing acts of editing when he turns our rambling conversations into our beautifully precise and polished podcasts. I mean, Cameron's editing is like, you know, that's like multidimensional, like to talk about, I, I can deal with words on a page, but I don't know about like sounds in space, like that's a whole other level of magic. You know, there is something really funny and almost mid-century when Bridget is describing a scroll of paper being assembled by taping snippets of transcript into a long, cohesive whole. That is an analog process and I'm just old enough that I... <laughs> When I, when I do have to edit things, whether it's myself or other people, I have to do it on paper. I have to do it holding a pencil in my hand. It's really very difficult for me to work in um, Google Docs, as all the kids these days like to. Don't they just, though? Um, I found your question about the variety of tasks that editors of literary magazines have to do on a daily and weekly basis really perceptive like it seems to me that just as there are people whose talents are particularly suited to editing or writing as we've been discussing there are also people and Bridget is clearly one who have a variety of talents they can fundraise they can manage people they can communicate with the delicate creatures known as writers and they can do all of the other business and strategic and logistical tasks as well as editing that is a really specific niche within a niche Yes, I think that we have this kind of romantic image of like the intellectual editor holding forth about passive voice or about a specific (laughs) word choice. And that's great. That's great. But the truth is that editors also need to be able to have conversations with an art director. You know, they need to be able to talk to the people at the printing house. They (laughs) need to be able to manage logistics. And, And if you are working at a nonprofit, as Bridget is, you have to be able to write grant applications or ask rich people for money, you know? (laughs) That is all hard work. And each of those things is a skill in itself. And that a public space is 15 years old is testament to Bridget's ability to do more than just know when a story is good or when a sentence is good. Amen. Okay, we haven't really talked about writing for these literary magazines. Um, You mentioned a couple of stories that you have published or are going to be publishing. But I must concede that since I rarely read them, I have what is surely a ridiculous idea that most of the content comes from like freshly minted MFAs. Please correct what is surely a silly misconception. You know, to be sure, you're probably going to find stories by people who are just out of MFA programs. But some of those writers are the more exciting writers working today. I think about a writer like Jamel Brinkley, who was publishing in the little magazines a couple of years ago, turned those stories into a collection, and then was nominated for the National Book Award. You know, (laughs) you might also find writers whose names you recognize, who have like a slender story that doesn't quite fit inside of a book yet, or they've sent it to this magazine because they're friendly with the editor. Mm. But the real hope, honestly, is that you find work by someone you've never heard of and that you fall in love. You know, many years ago in a now defunct literary magazine called Tin House, I read a story by a writer named Tara Eisen. 
I, I don't know her. I've never met her, but I loved that story so much. I remember her name to this day. I remember that story. It was called Ball. And I remember that I sent the author a fan note, um, <laughs> which is not something I do a lot, but I yeah. read this story and I was like, this story is amazing. And I, I think I sent her an email and then I read her novel, you know, when it, when it came out. And so it's the possibility of discovery. That's the promise of the magazine. Right. And, you know, reading is always its own reward. Roman, your love affair with reading is one of the loveliest in history. It's it's downright inspirational. You you will keep proselytizing for reading <laughs> as long as you have breath, I know. I hope so. Listeners, we hope you have enjoyed this episode of Working. If you have, remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Then you'll never miss an episode. And yes, I'm going to give you a Slate Plus pitch. Slate Plus members get benefits like zero ads on any Slate podcast, bonus episodes of shows like Slow Burn and Danny Lavery's new show, Big Mood, Little Mood. Uh, But I also hope you would like to support the work we do here on Working. It's only $1 for the first month. And to learn more, you should go to slate.com slash working plus. Thank you to Bridget Hughes for being our guest this week. And as always, thanks to our fantastic producer, Cameron Drews. We'll be back next week for Isaac Butler's conversation with Joy McMillan, an editor on the Amazon series, The Underground Railroad, and several other projects with Barry Jenkins. Until then, get back to work. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad. To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai.